The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. I am really thankful. I, t- I was just thinking even during, uh, during worship today, just the sound team, the volunteers. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I led worship for the first time in like, oh, I don't know, a year. And um, it was a reminder how much work goes into what they do up here. Just in running cables. I mean, those guys show up sometimes at, I've seen them show up at 6.30 in the morning on a Sunday to set up for worship so that we can all gather together um, to sing praises to Jesus. And so I'm just really blessed by the work that they do and really thankful for those guys. Can you guys give me an amen on that one too? Yeah? Amen. We have a really dedicated team of volunteers. All right, we're going to be in first, or excuse me, Second Corinthians chapter thirteen. And uh, I'll be honest with you guys, I came in with the intention even this morning at five thirty in the morning to teach verses eleven through twenty-one of chapter twelve. What I ended up deciding to do was skip that completely and teach the rest of chapter thirteen, and we're going to be done with Second Corinthians after today. Um, I will encourage you to go back and read through those verses, but they're really just reiterations for the most part of some of the stuff we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, and I would rather just go ahead and get into what we have here today. Um, I thought we might have like two more weeks left, but Paul's closing here has so many statements that um, we're just going to kind of power through this and kind of see the conclusion of the matter, Um, and then we're about to start the book of Galatians, which is going to be a blast to look through. So today we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. This is an incredibly applicable letter. We're on like, uh, I think it's 21 teachings have made up our study through 2 Corinthians. We started it on June 8th, so we've been doing this for a while. Um, But we're studying a letter written to a church in Corinth, a real church in real time, real people. Um, But the reality is, is that this, we could look at it, it's just, it's so applicable. It's so applicable to our current context, both socially and practically, that we really could refer to it if we chose to as first and second Oregonians. It's exactly what we need to hear as the church here in our day at this time, but then again, that's how God's word works anyway. And this book is really unique. What we have seen over the last 21 weeks is we have seen Paul pour out his heart in such a way that no other book of the Bible, uh, except for maybe the Psalms, shows. I mean, Paul is just filleting himself open and pouring everything out to these people, and he is honest about his own struggles, his own despair and discouragement, um, his own frustrations about sin, about division. I mean, it's a really heartfelt, honest letter. And in it, there's a tension that's constantly brought up. It's this tension between strength and weakness. Um, It's something that we tend to pit against one another. You're either strong or you're weak, but you're not both. But what Paul introduces to us in the last time that we were together here in 2 Corinthians, we saw clearly, is that Paul introduces a whole new thing called strength through weakness. This idea that through our own weakness and our refusal to rely on our own strengths and our own abilities and to think that we've got everything under control ourselves, instead, understanding our weakness and then coming to Jesus with those things. And depending on Jesus, depending on the Holy Spirit's power in our lives, not our own talents and abilities, that this is what Paul is encouraging us to do. And we've said this many times throughout the series. I'll say it one more time in hopes that it sticks. God raises children different than we do. 
Our desire is to raise up children that can care for themselves, that can bathe themselves, that can feed themselves, that can learn and grow and have jobs for themselves, and then by God's grace one day provide for themselves and and all of those sorts, raise children for themselves. That's what we do as we are raising children. God doesn't work that way. It's an inverted kingdom. And what God is doing is raising up children that are increasingly dependent on him, not independent. And for many of us, we've experienced this. As we have grown in the grace and mercy of Jesus, we've become more and more and more aware of our own weaknesses, but also more and more and more aware of God's power and grace. And so we're drawn into dependency on it. And that's God's goal for us as he molds us into the shape and image of Jesus. And so this is the tension. This is the, the theme, if you will, of this text, strength through weakness. And Paul, in his kind of final warnings here in chapter 13, is going to jump right into some of these very things. So let's first look at verses 1 through 4. He says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, And I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Dad, this is the equivalent of, don't make me come down there. Moms, this is when you say, wait till your dad gets home. That's what Paul's saying here. If I come again, I will not spare them. Verse 3, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For also we are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. So track with me. we got to backtrack and remind ourselves of where we were last week in order to understand the, the, the seeming contrast that's going on here in this particular thing. Paul just got through teaching about the fact that when I am weak, I am strong. That it's through my weakness that I have strength. Because it's not about my strength, it's about my weakness when depending on God's strength. So he's, if you will, extolling the power of weakness. So here he is, and, and you got to think about the irony of this. Okay, so Paul's first visit, he comes to Corinth and he plants this church. He, if you will, gives birth to the church, so he kind of becomes the father, birthing this particular church. In his second visit, there were issues going on. He came to visit and was completely rejected by them. And so rather than dealing with them out of his own frustration or anger or whatever it was he was dealing with at the time, he chose to retreat, take some time away from them, and write to them to deal with those things. So he left in what was considered or viewed as weakness. In fact, the people there begin to point that out. Like that was evidence that Paul is weak. He's not a Christian leader. He's not an apostle. Dude is weak. He's a coward and he ran the moment you guys called him out. That's just evidence that he's not an apostle. And now he's saying there's going to be a third visit. First visit was to plant. Second visit, rejected. Third visit, he's coming to deal. Like he's like, all right, I'm coming and I'm going to deal with some stuff. I'm coming to clean house. There's judgment coming with me is what Paul's saying as he comes. And here's the irony of that. These false teachers in Corinth are pointing at Paul's weakness as evidence of the fact that he's not really a true apostle or leader. All they want to see is flashy, showy eloquence and what? Strength. And so Paul's like, you want it? You're going to get it. But they're going to get probably more than they've bargained for. Because Paul's retreat and that weakness was not about the reality that he is weak. It was an example of Christ-like humility, just as Jesus came in humility first. 
to give himself so that we might find life. The scriptures even say today that there's people that will mock. Oh, he's not coming back. You guys have been saying that forever. It's ridiculous. But what does the Bible tell us? That he's not slack. He's not weak. In fact, he's delaying because he is patient, desiring that we repent. But the scriptures do go on to say what? He's coming. And he's not coming in weakness the second time. He's coming in strength. He's not coming on a donkey. He's coming on a warrior's horse with a sword. And this is the same thing. This is what we see in Paul. Like, okay, I pulled out in weakness because that was Christ-like humility desiring that you guys would repent. And you're rejecting that. You're calling that weakness a sign that I'm not even a true apostle. What you want is strength. Well, you want it. You're going to get it. Here it comes. But what we need to understand and is good for us to know is that this this, this idea that he's coming to deal with this, this, this strength, if you will, the discipline and judgment that he's bringing with him when he comes, this is not Paul going, I can't wait to get a hold of those guys. Oh, I don't doubt that there were times where he felt that in his heart. Like we all do, right? And what we said before, how many perfect men have ever walked the face of this earth? How many? One. And that was Jesus. So the idea that Paul got knocked off his horse by Jesus, converted, and then never wrestled with frustration or anger or any of those things is just not true. And when you get rejected, your pride hurts. So I'm sure there were moments where Paul was like, oh, how many times did he rewrite that second letter, the severe letter that we don't even have? I mean, Paul was a man just like any of us with flaws and weaknesses and God growing in his life just like us. But when Paul's coming here, he's not coming to vindicate himself. He's not coming to get him. He's coming because he is a loving father who cares for his church. And a father who loves his children is going to deal with sin when they come. Not because he's frustrated. Not because he wants them to shut up or deal with it or because he wants to get them out of his hair. He's coming because he loves them and he knows he needs to deal with them. The first time he came is in love, sharing his heart. The second time he's coming with discipline. And as parents, we know there's a balance here that we need to strive for. Amen? No? <laughs> okay, let's try that again. Amen? All right. It's, it's weakness and strength. And there's tension between the two of them. Although we, it gets referred to by these people as weakness, in reality, what is it? It's grace. It's grace and and strength, or grace and discipline, or mercy and truth, whatever word you want to choose there. And there's tension between the two of these. And any good leader, leaders listen up, whether you're leaders of households, leaders of friends, leaders of businesses, listen up. This is important for you to know. A lot of our culture thinks that leadership is based totally in strength. It's not true. It is a lie. Even in the church, there are pastors that deal with poorly this struggle. I've dealt with them poorly at times in my life, and I've seen it dealt with poorly before. So you can, you can have churches, for example, that are led by a pastor who carries the weight and kind of the sense of his role so seriously that they, they just seem completely harsh. It's some sort of like tyrannical rule over the people. I'm the leader. You're going to follow me and do what I do. And if you disagree with what I say, if you disagree with what we're going to do, life is going to be really difficult for you. There are people that pastor churches in that very same way. Others, though, can lead or feel that they're leading in the exact opposite way. 
There's other pastors and other leaders that are so concerned with love and relationship between the people that they're leading that they'll never say anything with regards to discipline or sin or any of that kind of stuff because they're too concerned that if they say something that pricks the conscience or offends the ear of the listener, they're not going to receive back from them the affirmation that they actually genuinely deserve. So they never exercise discipline, never deal with sin, and as a result, whether they know it or not, they never lead. They never lead. And there needs to be a tension here. Leaders, listen, you need to be vulnerable. You need to be able to share your heart with your children, with your coworkers, with your Bible studies that you lead, huddle leaders, with your huddle group. They need you to show vulnerability. They need to know the stuff that you struggle with. They need to know that you still struggle with stuff. That's what Paul's done all through this letter. He just pour his heart out about the things that he wrestles with that plague him. And look, people that are following you need to see that kind of vulnerability and need to know that you're dealing with because often the only people that can actually help someone else heal are people who have been wounded themselves. If you haven't been through something, you're not going to be able to relate to someone to help walk them through the difficulties that they've been through. And so too often, people need to know that you've been wounded and hurt and been through stuff in order for them to even feel safe to trust with you the things that they're dealing with. Only wounded people often can heal. But at the same time, you have to lead. And so when you see things that are, if you will, dangerous to the person that you're leading, dangerous to your child, dangerous to your coworkers or whatever, you have to have the guts to speak up and to talk about sin And to point out the things that are dangerous. Because listen, it is supremely unloving if you don't. And so if you value love over, let's say, authority, you need to understand this. And if you don't, if you're like, I don't want to call that out because that could go badly for me. And I don't want to risk that. That's incredibly unloving. Because what you're saying is, is I would rather that person stay in a position of danger and me keep getting affirmation from them. What you're doing, you're not serving them. You're serving yourself. And that person becomes a resource, if you will, just affirmation to make you feel good about yourself. There needs, we leaders, biblical leaders live in the tension between mercy and truth. And it's something that we will wrestle with often, just like Paul does. And so Paul warns them, I'm coming, I'm coming again. I'm praying that you'll repent. I'm praying that this won't be necessary, but you want strength? I'm going to deal with what needs to be dealt with, but it's not because he's angry, vindictive, or wants to uh, defend his ego. He's doing this because he desperately loves this church. They are his children. He calls them that. And so he says, I'm coming. I love you enough to be that guy, if that's what I have to be. And he goes on in verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you do fail to meet the test, I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. Now this is ironic as well, because Paul has just spent a couple of chapters here doing what? Defending the analysis and examination of the people of Corinth. False teachers have been analyzing him and picking him apart. Oh, he's not really a person you should follow because he's all about money. 
He's not someone you should follow because he talks a big game when he's away, but he's a coward when he's here. He doesn't speak eloquently like we do. He doesn't have letters of recommendation like we do. He struggles and he suffers. He doesn't have prosperity like we do. And they're picking him apart, saying that he's not really a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so Paul comes in, and now he completely turns the tables. He's like, analyzing me? Okay, I've answered all this. Foolishly, he feels. He says over and over in chapter 12, I feel foolish having to do this. But now in chapter 13, he says, but enough about me. Examine yourselves. See whether you are of the faith. This is not something people always enjoy. I've offended people in my years in ministry for sure by challenging people or challenging this church to do this very thing from time to time, to take stock, to look at yourself, to analyze yourself, to make, your, to make sure. And some people will say, I don't need to analyze myself. I am a Christian. I've been a Christian for 20 years and I don't need you making me doubt. It's not about making you doubt. It's about, that's just biblical. Analyze yourselves to see whether you have the faith. Test yourselves. The Bible says make your calling and election sure. Look, it's a big deal. Get it right, amen? The consequences of this are way too severe to assume. And the calling in Scripture is to continually analyze yourself, look at this, study these things. Now, the question then is, so how do we do so? What's the criteria by which we analyze or examine ourselves to make sure we're of the faith? Well, it it must be doctrine. If you're of the faith, then you will believe these certain things about Jesus and these certain things about God. And if your doctrine lines up with everything we believe, congratulations, you're in. No, that's not what he reaches to. Could be our checkbooks. How much money do you give to the church? There are churches in this world that would say that. Maybe it's works. That if you've done enough things, enough godly things, you came to church enough times, you went to enough Bible studies, you read enough Christian books, you only listened to Christian music or whatever the case is, that there's some sort of scales that you can sort of tip into your favor to prove, see, I'm real, I'm genuine, I'm of the faith. But Paul doesn't reach to any of those things. He just gives you a simple test. He says simply, or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Just plain and simple. Is Jesus Christ living and dwelling within you? If he is, you're of the faith. If he's not, you need to think about that. It's as simple as that. Is Jesus Christ living and dwelling in you? What evidence is there of Christ in your life? Is there an increasing conviction over sin? An increasing desire to grow and be more like him? An increasing knowledge to want to, or excuse me, desire for knowledge to learn about him, just an increasing growth. Because Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to mold us from glory to glory into the image of Christ. So that's the process once we've been saved that we embark on. And we're not there yet, amen? I don't care how long you've been walking with Jesus, you're not there yet. It is a process We said last week, if you believe in the very concept of sanctification, it means you are admitting right away that you're not done yet because we're only finished when we're in his presence. The Bible says that when we see him, we will be what? Like him. So that's the end. That's the finish line. In the meantime, God is, by the Holy Spirit, growing us into that image. So there does need to be some sort of increasing evidence of the fruit of Jesus Christ in our life. For some people it might be a spark, and for other people it might be a bonfire, but there needs to be some sort of fruit that just shows Jesus is in me. 
And Paul calls this out to them because they don't even recognize the, the fruits of Jesus Christ in Paul's life himself when, with regards to things like humility and all those things. So he's saying, hey, before you go picking everyone else apart, you should probably consider yourself. I think Jesus said something about a log and a speck, maybe you remember? And the idea is, is that we need to be quicker. And really, this is just across the board. Any application of the gospel always starts with ourselves before it goes anywhere else. I mean, that's just what humility means. The Bible says that when someone's caught up in sin, we're to go to them what? Humbly considering ourselves lest we also be tempted. So the idea is before we even approach people about sin, we're doing work on self. Like we're going to God with our own junk, making sure our own hearts are in the right way. And Paul here too is saying, you guys are examining and picking me apart. You might want to take a minute, might want to take a minute and just make sure Jesus is in you. And he says, I think you'll find out, or I hope that you'll find out we have not failed that test. He goes on in verse 7. And we pray to God that you may do no wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. And so Paul here, he says to them, literally, look what he's doing here. He's praying that these people that have plagued him for a period of years does well. He said, I pray that you do well. I love it when I'm weak and you're strong because I don't want to come in strength. I want you to do well. Now, truth be known, most of the time, me, you, we don't tend to do this maybe quite as quickly. Some of you may be further down that road and becoming more and more like Jesus. But, but a lot of times our initial reaction is not so much to pray for them, but maybe to go all David and pray about them. You know what I'm talking about, those David prayers? There is an entire category of prayers in the Psalms that are referred to as precatory Psalms. You know what they are? It means, God, will you just get them? Like, will you just get that guy? And I mean, they get graphic. Like you could read some of them. They're like, Lord, defeat that enemy. Smash their babies against rocks. You're like, David, shh, don't pray that, man. Like, what are you doing? Where is your heart as you're praying those things? Now, what you do see is as David prays those things, as he goes to God with those struggles and frustrations, his heart comes around. You see God working in him and molding him and changing him too because he's coming before God himself. But let's just be honest, there are times when people drive us nuts and frustrate us, and the last thing we want to do is pray for them, but we would love to pray about them. Get them out of here. May his tire go flat. May the power be out in his house. May he oversleep because I cannot deal with that fool today. Can you just anything, Lord, do anything, but don't make me, and yet Paul's different, and, and really because Paul is being more and more in that humility like Christ. Jesus who said in Matthew 5, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. I mean, think of Jesus on the cross. He's being beaten and punished like no other man in history has, and what does he do? He says, Father, what? Forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. This is beautiful what Paul's doing here. That Paul desires for them to do well. He's praying that he doesn't have to deal with that. Even these people that are making his life miserable, he wants them to be saved and he wants them to be changed. And by the grace of God, may we grow in that. I, again, I don't think Paul just hopped up one morning after his conversion and suddenly never struggled with anger. 
When we get into Galatians, you will see that's not true over and over and over. I mean, Paul was just like us. He had to grow just like us. And maybe there were times where Paul had to sit and pray and say, Lord, I've got anger issues. I'm dealing with some stuff. Can you help me just like David did? But by the grace of God, may we grow closer and closer into that likeness of Christ that we can pray for those who hurt us, that we can pray for our enemies. And Paul, in, in, all, in all honesty, he just doesn't want to come to town and just show strength because he's a good father. I mean, no good father only wants to discipline his kids. Who does that? No good dad wants to just come and spank. And the goal of a father is not to beat a child into submission, but to grow a child up into maturity. A, child, a father that only wants to beat a child into submission is not a good father. He's selfish. He doesn't want the headache of a disbehaving kid. He doesn't want to have to deal with temper tantrums. He doesn't want to have to teach anything. He wants to be able to have his beer and watch the game and not be bothered. And so he'll be into submission so, that just, so the problem just goes away. That's not a good father. That's selfish. Paul's a good father. And so he's willing to invest himself over and over and over to pray for them over and over and over because he doesn't want the problem to go, to way, go away. He wants them to be saved. May this be our heart. Amen? Can we say amen that it's not easy? It's, <laughs> that was a much louder amen. <laughs> but it's, it's not easy, right? But if we take time to stop and to remember the gospel, because remember, we weren't seeking to grow when Jesus came for us. And who knows this better, for, better than Paul? Was Paul seeking Jesus when he got saved? Was Paul hopping Bible study to Bible study, looking for that experience that's going to change his life? Was Paul, you know, praying, going to pastor's conferences and watching TV? Well, nobody, forget it. Anyway, it was, no, of course he wasn't. What was he doing? He was killing Christians. And Jesus said, I think you're going to come with me. And so when we realize that truth, like, what, what we want to do is we want to put ourselves in the place of Paul as the father. And we want to go, yeah, I need to be like Paul. I need to not be frustrated with my kids and just worship Jesus more and be more graceful. But what we have to do is we have to start in the place of the child, you understand? And realize we're the frustrating kid, not the patient dad. We're the one that has failed over and over and over. We're the one that if we had a bad heavenly father, he would want to beat us into submission and get us out of the way because his patience with us is gone. But we have a good father who is patient with us over and over and over and loves us. And then we realize, wait, I am the frustrating kid. Now I can with sympathy react to the frustrating kids, if you will, that are in my path as well. That's what gospel-centered ministry means, Amen. Can I get an amen for some frustrated kids in here? We all are, right? But we have a good, good father. Sam, you should finish with that song. Did you already pick a song to finish in? Is that too late? Maybe. We'll see how, we'll see how sharp he is if he sings that song. Anyway, no, no pressure. <laughs> so he's there because he's a father. And this is that struggle. He's not coming in to say, you will respect me, you will obey me. But he's looking to nurture and grow them into maturity. And then Paul comes to his conclusion. <clears throat> He says in verse 10, For these reasons I write these things while I'm away from you, 
that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me because I want to build up. This is that thing. I want to build up. I want you to be built up. I don't want to tear you down. This is Paul's heart. And then he comes to this conclusion in verse 11, and he says, finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. He brings the letter here to this solid conclusion with these five admonitions here. These five, um, really in the original Greek, almost all of them are one word, short little imperative statements. All of them that are very important. And the first one is this. He says, number one, rejoice. Now think about it. This is an interesting thing for a guy that's wrestled with depression, despair, and frustration to reach to first with regards to this church. That the first thing he would say is rejoice. I would reach for repentance. <laughs> hey, repent already, okay? But no, he, he says rejoice. And when you think about it, like, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot to rejoice about in Corinth. I mean, it seems like they get it wrong way more than they get it right. And again, if this church in Corinth was a church next door or a church, you know, mega church in the news, whatever you want to call it here in this day and age, we would be calling from sea to sea that that church be shut down because of the things that are going on. And so Paul says about this church, he says, number one, I want you to rejoice in spite of the things that are going on. This is a recurring theme in all of Paul's writings, especially in Philippians. Rejoice. Paul writes that in Philippians, sitting in jail, expecting to die any day. And you can see him even sort of almost coaching himself in that. He says, rejoice. Again, I say, rejoice. Like he has to make sure he believes it, even as he's saying it to these people. But this is something he says over and over. So it must be, it must be that he's saying that this rejoicing has something to do with something else. It can't possibly be rejoicing that's rooted in present circumstances. Because there's nothing in Corinth to rejoice over. But what Paul wants us to rejoice, and you, you that are struggling with stuff even now, that you hear that and Paul says, rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. And you're like, shut up. You don't know what I'm dealing with, man. This is what he's saying. He wants you to rejoice in two things. He, he wants you to rejoice in something that's happened in the past and something that's still to come. To Paul, he wants you to rejoice in the reality that Jesus Christ has given his life for you and has adopted you and that you are children of God, those of you that have put your faith in Jesus. He says you need to rejoice that you are God's child. No matter what you're dealing with today, you are a child of the king of kings. You're a joint heir with Jesus. Paul even wrote to the Corinthians, you have everything and you don't even realize it yet because one day you are going to reign with Christ because you are his heir. That is worth rejoicing in. But he also wants you to rejoice in something to come. Like, this book has been really honest about struggles and despair, but he doesn't want us to stay there. Like, if you're in that, it's relatable, amen? To read these things and to feel like, man, it's not just me. But, but the goal is that God, by his grace, is going to move you on to something else because we rejoice in what Jesus has done for us, and then we rejoice in what Jesus promises to do. The struggles today are real, and they're lame, and they're awful, and sometimes they don't feel like they're ever going to go away. But he's coming again. And we may struggle with sin today, but when Jesus comes again, he is going to remove the very presence of sin from us, and all those struggles are gone. Jesus himself, the Bible says, is going to wipe your tears away. And then there'll be no more weeping. 
or sickness or sorrow or mourning. That is a promise. And sometimes it's hard for us because we only see this world that we're in. We're kind of trapped in this one little world, and it seems like forever. But he says, I'm coming. And this life that you're in is but a vapor, but I'm coming. And so he says, number one, church, rejoice in that. Everybody say rejoice. Rejoice. The second thing is this. Number two, aim for restoration. This is a church that is plagued by division, and Paul asks them to aim for unity. In other words, make it a goal in your life that you're going to be one together, unified. Make it a goal in your life that you're going to be unified. Like this is a target, something you should continually be working for in your life is unity. We don't put near the emphasis on unity that Jesus did. And we should. His dying prayer, if you will, in the Garden of Gethsemane while the disciples were sleeping and the army is on its way to arrest him and kill him, he prayed, may they be one as I and the Father are one. That's what he desires. He knew we would splinter. He knew there would be fractures. He had been leading those yahoos for the last three years. He understood divisions and rivalry and all that kind of stuff. But his desire is that we would be unified together. Again, what good dad wants to see his children split? He wants to see unity in the family of Christ. Unfortunately, in Corinth, this never fully took That's the sad thing. Um, There's a a church father named Clement who wrote to the church in Corinth in AD 95, many years after Paul wrote. And he described the Corinthian church as plagued by, quote, jealousy, envy, strife, sedition, and persecution. It never really took. Can I just say, I mean, I'm not your father. We have one father. God is the father of this church. But can I just say as the pastor of this church, let's not let that be our story, Heritage. Let's not let it be 20, 30, 50, 100, however long God graces this church with existence. Let's not let it be the story of this church that we took something that was so important to Jesus that he prayed for it as he was going to the cross and throw it aside. May we strive for, may that be something we look at as a bullseye and aim for unity with one another. Amen? And with the the broader body of Christ too. Amen? Now, but here's the thing. Um, you will never come to that place if you're only thinking of yourself. That's just how it works. I mean, if, if you're desiring unity, but you only look at self and worry about self, you'll never get there. That's just how it works. So Paul's next exhortation is that we would comfort one another. I mean, he says at the beginning of the book that we would comfort others with the comfort by which we were comforted, Right? And so he says here that I want you to have unity, but if you're going to have that unity, then you need to do this too. You need to comfort one another. In other words, you need to consider the things that other people are going for, going through. You need to minister to one another. You need to invest in one another. You need to look out for one another. If you're only looking at yourself, you have no shot at unity. But the idea, even that word comfort can actually also be translated as come together. And so when we're looking out for one another, When we're coming to be part of church for the idea, and I don't mean just on Sunday, but when we're part of a church that says, I'm going to make it an aim in my life, a priority in my life to look out for others and to serve others and to pray for others. And when I see people hurting, I want to be a comfort to others. That's the means by which you find unity. Because that's what Jesus himself did. Paul writes about it in Philippians. He says, have this mind in you which was in Christ Jesus. Consider others better than yourself, that you would humble yourself to serve and meet the needs of other people. 
So if we want to be a unified church like Jesus desires the church to be, then we have to be an others-centered church. Because if we just look at ourselves and we're just going to be prideful, self-serving, self-interested, and we will never, ever get there. We'll never get there. And so comfort one another is the next one that he says. When you serve somebody, you will come to love them. Then number four, he says this, agree with one another. Now, this is not a call to blind unity or harmony for the sake of harmony. That never works. Never works. I mean, since sometime in the 90s, we've been hearing a call for diversity and uh, tolerance. That's a continued thing. Be tolerant. There's the license or whatever, the bumper sticker with all the logos or all the different religious symbols. Logos, that's a weird word. Religious symbols and all those things. And tolerance used to mean that we would respect one another enough to give each person the freedom to believe that which they believe. That's tolerance just for the sake of tolerance. But it, it just, it doesn't work. And because what has happened now is tolerance has gone from that. It's gone from giving everyone the freedom to believe differently to you have to accept now the beliefs of everyone else. And if you don't, you are what? Intolerant. That's when you're striving for harmony for the sake of harmony. But that's not what Paul's calling for here. It doesn't mean agree with one another on every little element of doctrine, does it? I mean, the five churches that are going to get together here on the 14th to uh, worship together and to learn from one another, there are a lot of things, a lot of different areas of doctrine that we disagree with one another on. Lots of them. There's everything from Calvinist to Arminian. There's baptism by sprinkling and baptism by immersion. There's all sorts of different things that we differ on. But where's the one place that unity is found? It's at the foot of the cross, in the person of Jesus, and in the work of the gospel. And so like me and those other pastors, though we disagree on tons of stuff, I'm I'm sad how wrong they are in so many different areas. (laughs) But here's the thing. We can come together and have a deep, real, genuine love, respect, and honor one another because we look at Jesus as our head. And we look at the reality of the gospel and the call to ministry that he's given us. We found these foundational elements of Christianity that we can agree with one another. And all it does is harbor more respect for one another. We spend way more time talking about the things that we are like in than we do debating the things that we're different about. No one is going to get into heaven based on their theology. Do you know that? You're not going to be at the gate going, okay, explain the five points of Calvinism and why you agree or disagree. Um, give me your eschatological breakdown, why Jesus is coming here and why it's going to work that way and how does oil play into the equation. And all that. I mean, you're not going to get any of that kind of stuff. What's your doctrine of substitution? It, it's going to be, is Jesus in you? That's it. And there is unity in the body of Christ when we just rally around the reality that Jesus Christ has died for us, that he is our God and that we are brothers in Christ. That's where unity is found. And we can agree with one another on those things. And then lastly, he says this. He says, live in peace. Now this one is sort of really a culmination, if you will, or maybe you would say a a result of what happens if you do the other four. It's really the easiest way of saying it. Um, If you live this sort of life, 
If we make it a priority, church, to rejoice in spite of circumstances, to aim for restoration and unity, to comfort one another, to agree with one another, then we're going to find as time goes on, it's a pretty peaceful way of life. It doesn't mean that we're without trouble, but when trouble comes, you have peace because you have community. You have the Spirit of God. You have help from others. You have love around you. You're not alone. When disagreements come, you have peace because you know that even if you disagree, you're not going to split from this person because you have unified in the person of Jesus and that those differences that we squabble over in the end really don't amount to a ton in the grand scheme of things. You have peace because you know when a problem comes, there's someone that's going to come comfort you. Someone's going to come help you. And when you learn how to rejoice because of what Jesus has done in the past and in what Jesus promises to do in the future, then you find that you have peace even in the middle of the worst circumstances in life here today. This is what this means. Now, let's have a final observation. Well, really, there's one other. Number 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. So here's what we're going to do. If you would turn to your neighbor... No, really what he's talking about here is that there should be a deep-seated and genuine intimacy. Like we should. When we're serving one another and loving one another and coming to agreement with one another and realizing that we are a family with one another, there should be some form of affection that comes, right? I mean, I'm not going to smooch any of you or most of you. Some of you do. It makes me a little weirded out, i got to be honest. But but (laughs) we can side hug or we can do that brother's thing. We can do some of that. Um. But our hearts should be moved to have genuine affection for one another to some degree. And it will. When you serve one another, you will come to love them. That's what Jesus does in our hearts. Um, but now here's a final, here's a final uh, sort of observation on this. Like all that stuff's great. All that stuff sounds good in theory, amen? But here's the thing. It doesn't come naturally, does it? It's not like, are we all in agreement? Yes, yeah, so be it. We voted it in and that's what the year's just going to look like naturally. It doesn't work that way, does it? But because here's the deal, human nature naturally is fallen and sinful. It's just the reality of it. Human nature is naturally fallen and sinful. We don't rejoice naturally, we what? We complain, right? We don't naturally aim for unity, we, we want to be right, or we want to focus on self. We don't naturally comfort one another. We feel awkward sometimes comforting one another, and we don't want to get outside our comfort zone, so we just don't do it. I mean, those things don't come naturally, and the result of all of that is we rarely live in the kind of peace that God promises us because of those things. That's what happens naturally. This stuff takes some effort. Ooh, that's a bad word in a gospel-centered church, isn't it? Work. Did he say work? Yeah. By the grace of God working in our life and by setting goals, understanding the scripture and saying by faith we want to aim for these things, there's things that we should strive to achieve. Paul calls us to strive for our faith, to strive for these rewards, to do these things. Restoration is work. When you disagree with someone and you have to humble yourself and make that phone call that says, can we get coffee and go have that awkward conversation? When you have to apologize or at least humble yourself, even when you know you're right, that's hard, amen? That's not easy. It does not come naturally. Comforting others, that's work. It can be exhausting. It can be scary, not knowing what to do or how things are going to play out or what to say in a given moment. To step out and allow the Holy Spirit to work in you to comfort somebody else, that's not easy. Rejoicing, 
super laborious at times. Can we just be honest and take the fake mask off? Once in a while, isn't it hard to come to church and sing? Sometimes aren't we just tired or wrestling with sin and so we don't feel like we can do that? Sometimes rejoicing is hard, amen? It's just hard. But Paul says this is something that we should strive for. This is good for the church. That This is what God designed the church to be like. And unfortunately, too often, our approach to church is the exact opposite. Because the highlight, the big event of the normal week of our church rhythm is referred to as the worship what? Service, in which it's like one guy talking and the rest of us out here. Or, or it's an event where it's like 10% of the people serving kids and all that, but we come together. And in much of our current cultural context, the service is something we come to to be served. That's why we even call it that way. But Paul says this is not the intended design of the church. The intended design of the church is that we would be a people that are unified and bonded, that reach outside just the four walls of an hour and a half or two hours on a Sunday or whatever the case may be, but that the idea is that this is what we're desiring to do. And I promise you this, church, you will get out of a relationship with anyone, but especially the church, as much as you put into that relationship. It's just sowing and reaping. It's just, the, the, just how it works. I mean, if you want an amazing, fruitful marriage, you have to pour into that marriage. If you want an amazing business or a great relationship with your coworkers, you have to pour into that relationship. And I'm just telling you, you can be the most committed Sunday attendant ever, but if you're not coming here desiring to serve God by in, mixing in with and serving God's people, then you're missing out. I mean, maybe that's one of the reasons that you struggle with peace in your life even. This is what God desires of the church. And, and I'm in this, this cohort program through Western Seminary working on, on my master's degree up there. And what I've discovered, and I've learned this the hard way too, what, we, we get these assignments. And once a month, I go to Portland and I sit down with this group of 12 other pastors and our theology professor and we work through stuff. But there's like tons of reading and writing that I have to do before I go. And I've gone before when I didn't have tons of reading and writing done before I got there. It was just busy season or... I don't know, procrastination comes pretty naturally to me. And so I made it up there to Portland, whatever, and now I'm sitting there in this room for eight hours on a Friday with all these other guys who did their work, and I get very little out of it because I don't even know what we're talking about. I didn't read the stuff. I'm just scrambling, hoping I can get enough notes to pass the exam. But, but I've noticed the opposite in that when I invest ahead of time, when I take the time to do the work, to read the books, to study the stuff, to come in, and now I'm actually participating in what's going on in the room, man, growth comes quick. Learning comes quick. Understanding comes quick. And can I say this? It's way more fun. There's joy in that. So maybe you have been coming here for a really long time and not doing that. Can I urge you for your own good and for the good of the church, invest in the people of God. Trust God's word. And you may just find that there's some peace that's been eluding you for a really long time in serving God and his people. Amen? Well, let's close with this. He says this. Verse 13, all the saints greet you. Verse 14, and he notice this. He's gonna give us in his closing kind of the order of salvation. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's how we get saved, isn't it? Through the grace of Jesus Christ, we are brought into the love of our Heavenly Father. And then we are filled with the Holy Spirit that we might minister to, love, and participate with the greater body of Christ. This is our story. This is our song. So may we praise our Savior all the day long. Amen.
Let me say one last thing to you as Sam comes up to close us. Um, Paul writes these things and he says, hey, um, I'm coming. And and the next time I come, it's not going to be the warm fuzzy. There's stuff that I'm going to deal with here. Well, can can I just tell you this? Jesus wrote letters. The Holy Spirit, through these men, has written letters to us. And listen to what Jesus says himself. In 1 John 2, 28, he says this, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. I'm not trying to throw down a guilt trip at the very end of the first message of the year, but may I just remind you, he's coming again. And may we be a church who are found busy about our Father's business so that on that day when the clouds part, when the trump blows, when our faith is made sight and Jesus Christ is here, may we not be ashamed. There are so many that will be caught and ashamed and fearful. But instead, may we, by the grace of God and his Holy Spirit working our life, find joy and peace and happiness, anticipating the coming of our King. Amen? Amen. Will you guys stand with me? We're going to close in song. Can I just say this? And if if the huddle leaders and elders that are here would just kind of quietly make their way to the back as we close. If you're here today and you're like, man, if Jesus was to show up today, I don't know what I would do. Please, I'm begging you. He came gently once. He doesn't come gently on the second time. Make sure, examine yourself that you're of the faith. There's some men and women that will be in the back that would love to pray with you and introduce you to Jesus, help you work through those challenges so that you can leave this place with absolute assurance knowing that if Jesus came today or if this was your day, if this was the day and you were to pass from this place, God forbid, that you would know exactly where you will be, that you will know that you're in the embrace of your Savior that you will know you're in that place where there's no more sin, no more shame, no more suffering, and no more pain, and that you might see Jesus face to face. Amen? Let's sing.